Good morning. Good to see you. Oh, I can't see you. Good to think I see you this morning. And I don't know if you're in pajamas or suits and dresses, but it's good to be together. And uh, that's a greeting to all of our Grace Community family, but also any of you who happen to be catching up with us this morning in our series on Philippians. This morning we're in chapter 4, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. I was thinking, how important it is to be kind of right-hearted and attuned to the Lord when we come to worship. Like, how can we worship if we're not right-hearted? How can we speak for the Lord as I am speaking for the Lord for his word now? Or listen as you are listening now. How can we do that if we're not attuned to the Lord? I've shared in the past how my favorite wife, Shelley, well, actually, she's my only wife, but she's also my favorite. You know, if we have a disagreement, it's pretty hard if that falls on a Saturday and we don't mend that fence, restore the harmony and unity that is generally between us, it's very hard for me to get up and talk to you about what the Lord has put on my heart through his word if I'm not right with the Lord. That's what this passage, I think, has to do with. So let's read it together, starting in chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat, or I beg, Euodia, and I entreat, or I beg, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, literally, to have the same mind, to think alike in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion or yoke fellow, we don't know who that is, but it's obviously somebody that everybody else knows. It could be Epaphroditus who is carrying this letter from Paul to all those belonging to the church at Philippi. I ask you also, true companion, help them. Help them who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near, or the Lord is at hand. Can rights be wrong? Can Euodia be right? Can Syntyche also be right and both be wrong? Who arbitrates the court of opinion? 
even the court of our land, armed as it is with case law and precedents, in the court of our land, right is argued by legal counselors and presided over by a judge and in certain cases dependent on and decided by the verdict of a jury, all of which is very, very human, all of which is subject to not only a verdict, but subject to appeal, even after a verdict is handed down. You see, my point is, even though our system of law, the law of the land, and to many, the best system of law in the world, in history, but be that as it may, we live under a different law and a higher law. We who are citizens of heaven live under God's law. More importantly, God's law is the law of love. The law that has been burnished and glorified in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The law that has been made sure and eternal in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection and Pentecost, the outpouring of the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, at the ascension and seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, at Pentecost, the Spirit has been poured out on his church, on you and me, in Jesus Christ. And that we celebrate today, on May 31st, Pentecost Sunday. And it has been poured out on not just any people, the resurrection people, those who have the Spirit, those who belong as children, brothers and sisters to the Son, who is our Redeemer. That law of love is not just talk. It's who we are to be. It is a more inclusive law, a more demanding law than the law of the land. The law of love reaches beyond the letter of the law. The law of love wields the mighty power of grace and forgiveness. The law of love expresses the heart of the lawmaker, Jesus Christ. In this letter, Paul addresses a serious disagreement, a dispute between two people. It seems that the division between them has become something of a class action suit. P. 
pitting not just two people, but two parties, perhaps even two house churches represented by each of the, if you will, litigants. And the disagreement threatens to divide the church of Jesus Christ, the church which is the work of the Holy Spirit, the church which is the good news of Jesus Christ and what God has accomplished through him in whose name we live and have our being, our identification, our citizenship. And that's all at stake. It's at risk. What the Philippians, as Paul has pointed out, in every smooth-flowing, end-to-end word since he began this letter, how they've worked together, labored side by side to announce that good news to the people around them, to the region in which they live. That's all at risk. Remembering this letter, reading it, from the start, with this disagreement as a lens by which to view what Paul is saying all the way along, we hear again oneness, oneness, unity, unity, again and again, the mind of our Lord, the mind of Christ. We hear Paul utter his one prayer in this letter. It is a prayer to love. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we hear Paul's one plea in this letter to stand united in one spirit. In chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we hear Paul's one demand in this letter to set the interests of others above our own. To seek first, not our interests, but those of others. We hear Paul's call in this letter to have one mind, the mind of Christ. The Lord to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. He who first humbled himself and assumed the lowest position and disposition. That is whom we call Lord. We read and we see in this letter in chapter 3 that we are called citizens. We who are the true circumcision, who offer true worship, to God through his Holy Spirit. And in verse 3 of that chapter, we are the ones who are righteous by virtue of God's gift, his grace in Jesus Christ, our righteousness, and the power to live new life, for we are new creatures. 
We are a new creation. And the bedrock of that new creation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which inaugurates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the harvest of fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love and joy, the hallmarks of this letter. We are no longer, you see, to rely on the old ways, walking in the well-worn paths of other people who do not follow Jesus, for we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the law giver, the lover who has captured our hearts. Euodia may be right. Syntyche may be right. One may be 70% right. The other may be 70% right. But rights can be altogether wrong when they do not seek the law of love. The law that was written on the cross with the blood of Jesus Christ. He was 100% right. 100% just. 100% innocent. He wrote the law of love in the giving of his life with the shedding of his own blood. We seek, we are to seek perfect justice when we seek not to be right, but to seek the law of love. As citizens, Paul says, seek the heart of the Lord. And that's the key expression. He says, he doesn't take sides. He says, I beg you, Euodia, which means, by the way, a favorable or successful journey. And he says, I beg you, Syntyche, uh, which means lucky. Uh, I beg you both. Agree, have the same mind, think the same thoughts, have the same disposition. But what's the foundation of that? Note those words, in the Lord. That's where we always find unity, harmony, fraternity, generosity, and solidarity, and much more. It all begins there. What does uh, the Apostle John say in his first epistle? 1 John 1, 7 if we, we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. That's a kinship. That's fraternity. We have that when we are one in him. So it is, as citizens, we seek the heart of the Lord. And we're going to look at three things that surface here. I've called, they're the, they're the same qualities, benefits, uh, side effects, good side effects, fruit of seeking the heart of the Lord. I've called it solidarity in verse 2, fraternity in verses 3 through 4, and generosity in verse 5. Solidarity in verse 2, is built on the foundation of God's love shown to us in Jesus Christ. We call it unconditional love. I heard that for the first time 
For me, it was back in 1972. It was kind of the point of the spear that pricked my heart when I heard the gospel, that God loved me in Jesus Christ. He showed that love to me in Jesus Christ, an unconditional love, a love that wouldn't quit on me, a love that wouldn't go away, a love that wouldn't disappear, a love that wasn't a fair weather love. It was a love that would love me even when I was unlovable. That's a great love. That's the love we crave. We call that covenant love. That's the biblical word for unconditional. Covenant. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. And after they ate... The cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. That's what we observe on a regular basis, reminding us of his unconditional love demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. The law of the land has contracts, not covenants. The law of the land sees binding relationships as contracts. The law of of love sees binding relationships as covenant marriages. Covenants before God are enduring, enduring. They are unconditional. It's the difference between God's love and the law of the land. I said already, the law of love is a higher caliber. Covenants endure because, and this is very important, if you've never realized this before, it's important to realize it. Covenants endure because covenants are made knowing that disappointment and betrayal are a part of that covenant. But in a contract, disappointment and betrayal can be an incentive or even it can be a a justification of breaking the contract. It can be an incentive to break the contract or a stipulation that the covenant or the contract is broken. In that sense, contracts are snares. If we fail, we're met with lawsuits. But covenants are safe havens. If we fail, we're met with love. Covenant love meets disappointment and betrayal with love. Covenant love becomes a contract and not a covenant when legalism takes the place of love. And that can happen in relationships, and it can happen in marriages. When we start looking for ways to break that bond of love that is really fueled, inspired, revived, long-lasting, because it's infused with God's love, the love that we see in Christ at the cross, 
in his life for ours. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection of mercy, any complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, being united in the Spirit, and being one mind. So, Paul singles out Euodia and Syntyche by name, but he really didn't need to, except, of course, I believe he has every confidence that they are going to resolve that. I mean, he only focuses on them for about two verses, but he applies the same principles to us all. I remember when I was a child, I and my sister fought frequently. We were frequent fighters. And mom or dad would get in the middle of that, and when we would be barking and arguing and accusing one another, one or the other of my parents would inevitably say, it takes two to fight, implying that we're both at fault, we're both to blame. The reason I bring it up is that it takes two there's usually going to be someone else on the other side. But we, even though it takes two, are to take the initiative, the first step. We're to seek the heart of the Lord. That's our calling, not to wait on someone else, not to recline and say, it takes two, it's not my fault. God's love is not passive, it's active. It's not a noun, it's a verb. It compels us to take the first step. It is a call. It is the activity of God in our life perceived and received by faith when we begin to step out in love. He's not only the source of solidarity when we seek his heart, He's the source of fraternity. Verse 3 and 4, Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help them who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Help them. Such simple advice. But it begins with a foundation of fraternity. You could call it kinship, fellowship, friendship. We are to love our neighbor that is, all the children of the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, we're to love our neighbor, and if we're to love our neighbor, we're to love our kin, for sure. How can we not live, love those whom God calls children? He underscores this fraternity when, in verse 3, he says, they have, talking about Euodia, Syntyche, uh, Clement, the yoke, true yoke fellow, and all the rest who are enrolled in the registry of life as citizens of heaven. He says, all of them have labored with me in the work of the gospel side by side. Help them. Don't sit by. Love. Take the first step. Did I ever tell you about my magic word? It's 
it's a word that I use. When, when I went into the pastorate, I did not like com, uh, confrontation. I didn't like to have to face people. I imagine that I'm like anyone else. I just, I wish I could brush it aside, make it go away, run away, or ignore it, and eventually it'll get better. Somehow, you know, time heals all. But in the pastorate, by that time, you've blown everything up. You have to go in love. You have to do the hard work of love. And I found that the magic word for me when I begin that hard work is the word awkward. Whether I actually use the word awkward, but what it means is I begin by saying, this is difficult for me. This is not something that's easy. And it gives me a chance to put my heart on the table. It doesn't make the work I have to do any less hard, but it gives me a chance to tell that person what I hope to achieve to draw them closer and to try and do it together in a constructive way that we join hands and move to the higher ground that God wants to take us to and do it together for the betterment of all. But most of all, the magic word does this. The magic word, when I am able to explain myself, that That get, gets rid of suspicion. That eliminates suspicion. And suspicion is the death of love. Suspicion kills love. Suspicion destroys love. And it destroys hope. It destroys goodwill. If you think the devil is in the details, suspicion sows the devil in the details. Suspicion turns help into duty. Suspicion is defensive and turns our attention on protecting ourselves as opposed to doing the work of God's love. Suspicion assassinates character. Suspicion kills people. Suspicion closes our hearts, hardens our hearts, blackens our hearts, poisons our hearts, and it destroys the love of Jesus Christ. What's suspicion doing to the love of Christ in our lives? What's it doing in your life today? What's it look like on your Facebook page, your Instagram account, your Twitter feed? What's it look like in your conversation with other people? The way you yell at the television or the way you see people you don't like. Can love even begin to get a foot in the door there? Are we joining in the accusing, vilifying, bitter criticism of people we don't even know? That we've never met? 
that will never actually have the, the chance to touch or influence in Christ's love, and yet we're poisoning people around us. Seriously, this is the evidence of a closed heart that has no compunction about drive-by assassinations from the safety and distance of our closed hearts. Would we face-to-face -face help them, get to know them, care for them, if they were near and not far? Is our gospel potent or increasingly impotent according to the reading of our lives? This is simple advice. Paul says it. Help them. Help them. He's the source of generosity. This is not generosity that has to do with, with giving, with money. This is generosity that has to do with a, a generous spirit, a willingness to be of service to others, to care for them. It's, it's characteristic of a principled person who stands on one's own two feet and does the right thing, the just thing, the honest thing, the thing that's best for another and not first what's best for themselves. It's my favorite word in all of Greek, epikis. It means reasonableness, forbearing spirit, Good sense, moderation, fair-minded, gracious is a great translation. It just depends on the situation. But in point of law, instead of sticking to the strict letter of the law, which is always self-serving, the person who is characterized by epikia is gracious and looks beyond the letter to the need of that person. And what I would say as Christians, and when it's used as Christians, it has to do with what God wants to do in that person's life. Do you have a vision of that? Does your own life begin to show what God can do? When people look at you, do they see the prospects of what it would be like to be a follower of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ? Or do they see just another person like that guy, that guy, or that guy kind of dressed up as a Christian? This is radical stuff. This is radical stuff. It's time for us to thrive in such radical stuff. And we do it by seeking the heart of the Lord. God bless you. Praying for you. You be praying for us. We want God's best for you.
So, air hug, elbow, fist bump. Love you.